on the front of your bulletins. See verse 59 of Psalm 119. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. Verse 52 also speaks of thinking. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. And thus, the title of this sermon, Think and So Follow Jesus. Scripture encourages us, indeed commands us, to think. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, a major theme of that book, as we saw in our recent series through that book. Consider Jesus. Think about Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. The entire book of Hebrews is consider Jesus. Romans 12, 2, which we just read. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind as you Think in light of God's truth. Or 2 Timothy 2.7, which we also considered recently in a sermon, Paul tells Timothy, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think, because God is going to make it clear to you. Well, we could cite many more verses from Scripture that encourage us to think. The media in this country love to portray Bible-believing Christians as ignorant, unthinking buffoons who fall for a story that they simply want to be true and then assign to hell everyone who doesn't swallow that same story. Many of us have been labeled this way by people we know, in some cases even by people we love. How accurate is that critique? That we are unthinking if we believe Scripture is true, is the Word of God. If we follow the commands of Scripture, we will think. But how are we to think. How are we to approach the scriptures? How are we to approach God? How are we to come to know truth? Last week we included, amongst what we read, John 8, 32, where Jesus says, If you abide in my word, if you remain in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and what? The truth will set you free. Well, in during the last two weeks, the first two sermons on Psalm 119, we've spoken of the relationship with God. How God's Word brings us into a relationship with Him. That yes, it renews our mind, but that renewal of our mind leads us to know and love the God who created us, who rules this world, who's redeeming this world. And we saw particularly last week how we are to actively depend on 
God and his word, not passively just stepping back, but actively turning our thoughts to him and his word. And, the, and God thus instructs us in a particular type of thinking. A type of thinking which is quite different from what's being advocated by our critics in the world around us. A type of thinking that acknowledges our dependence on God for life, for breath, for clear thought, for everything our obligation to him, a type of thinking that acknowledges our obligation to him as created, contingent, dependent beings. A type of thinking that acknowledges our rebellion against him, against that obligation that he gives us. A type of thinking that sees our hope only as in him and in his promise. So let's turn to Psalm 119. We'll be considering verses 49 to 72 this morning and see how it helps us to think. Three headings this morning. What should we think about? What should we ask God to do? And third, what is the impact of such thinking on us? What should we think about? What should we ask God to do? And then thirdly, what is the impact of such thinking on us? And in conclusion, we'll return to the contrast between the type of thinking advocated by the scriptures and the type of thinking that our culture advocates. So first of all, what should we think about? Four categories that we can tease out of these 24 verses of what we should think about. Begin with verse 55. I remember your name in the night. We read as our call to worship printed in your bulletin from Exodus 33, 34. Moses encounters God on Mount Sinai. And God says he will proclaim his name to Moses. And then he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And then he passes before Moses and says that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And yet he will by no means clear the guilty. And he keeps steadfast love for thousands. That's his name. We don't think of names that way, do we? But in Scripture, your name is descriptive of you. Your name speaks of your character, and so God had to change the name of Jacob when he did a great work in him, right? Change his name from Jacob to Israel. And the angel commanded Joseph and Mary to give their son a particular name, Jesus, because he would save his people from their sins. So God's name is his character. And Exodus 33, 34 summarizes for us what that character is and thus gives us the name 
of God. So I remember your name in the night, verse 55. And then verse 68 brings out part of that name. You are good and do good. This is who God is at his very core. He is good. And thus who he is comes out. He does good. With us, there's sometimes a distinction between who we are and what we do, right? In fact, with Christians, I will sometimes tell them, you're not behaving consistently with your identity. Right? Your identity is in Christ, and you're living inconsistently with that. I have to upbraid myself about that also, right? Where what I'm doing is not consistent with who I really am. But God is always consistent. Who he is comes out. And so you are good, God. That's your identity. And you do good. It comes out in every act which you do. And then 64 elaborates on his name. The earth, O Yahweh, O God, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Think about that. The psalmist is saying, if I just open my eyes and look, I see your loving character expressed in everything around us. And that's what that first hymn does for us, right? Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Look around and see how God's steadfast love is manifested in all aspects of his creation. Remember, a few months ago, we looked at Psalm 104, which again is a meditation on the way God's steadfast love is manifested in the entire created order. And we can also look at history and see this. The earth, O Yahweh, is full of your steadfast love. We can look at the present day of creation. We can look at the storyline of all of human history. You see God working out his plan of redemption over centuries, showing that steadfast love. See how he is displaying his character, his name, amongst all the peoples of the earth and see him bringing down the proud and lifting up the humble, seeing him filling the earth with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. The earth, though, Lord, is full of your steadfast love. So that's the general statement. The earth is full of your steadfast love. I can look historically. I can look around the world today. And that the next verse says that this is applicable to my own life. Verse 65. You have dealt well, or here to translate this literally, good you have dealt with your servants. That goodness that we see in the world around us that goodness that characterizes God, that is part of his name, is manifested in my life. You have dealt well 
And so we can thank him and praise him for the way his name is manifested in our lives and the lives of those that we love. Go back to 55 now. I remember your name in the night. Let's think about those last three words. I remember who you are in the night. I remember your character in the night. This can mean even in the night, right? I remember your name even in the night. And that could be literal. I wake up in the middle of the night, as I did last night, and what do I do? When you wake up at 3.30 in the morning, it's easy for your mind to race about all sorts of things. You begin to worry about things the next day or what happened the previous day or decisions that you have to make. And the psalmist is saying, at those times, I remember, I remember, I remember your character, your name, who you are, what you have revealed. So it can mean literally the middle of the night. It could be metaphorical, right? I remember your name in those hard times in life when all seems dark around me. I remember who you are. I remember your promise. I remember your character. I trust you in those hard times. I remember your name in the night when life is hard. Or the emphasis could be at all times. If I remember in the night, in those hard times, I'm also going to remember all those other good times. But we are to remember to think about his name. So that's the, the first of the four categories of what we should think about. Remember his name, his character. Secondly, we are to think about our ways, our paths. Verse 59, what we read before. When I think on my ways. So when I think about where I've been, the paths I have trod, where I'm going, the roads that are ahead of me. When I think about how easy it is for me to get off the right path. How many times I have strayed off that right path and gotten lost. When I think of the, the wrong roads I have taken and the impact on me and on those that I love because of those wrong roads. When I think of my ways. To use an illustration, Imagine that you need to drive from your home to uptown, right? Well, what happens if you don't use a maps app of some sort, right? About half the time you get caught in traffic somewhere, or you end up, there's a road closure which you didn't know about, and then you have to take a detour, you're missing the detour sign, and so you go some side street, you end up at a dead end, you don't know where you are. And so, you can think of this verse as saying, I've seen what happens when I try to drive from home to uptown without a GPS. I get lost, I get caught in traffic. So now, I always use that app. Right? 
the psalmist is saying is when I think on my ways, I realize how needy I am of your guidance. How much I need your ways. How following your word is what leads me, guides me, directs me, fulfills me, keeps me on your path. And left to my own devices, I'll get lost. In particular, as we think on our ways, we can think of past troubles, trials, difficult roads we've been on, and how God worked through them. And so, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. I got off the right path. But now, I keep your word. So as we think on our ways, we remember that in the past, we were straying, and the hard times that God brought into our life caused us to then say, I need to stay on his paths. And so thinking on our ways helps us to think clearly about the way that God works in our lives and to realize that trials, troubles in this world, a sovereign God can use to direct our paths in the right way. Similarly, verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Not saying the affliction was pleasant, but that a sovereign, loving God uses those in our lives to straighten out our paths, to cause us to walk in his ways. So we got to think about, reflect on our ways, acknowledge what happens when we try to guide ourselves apart from his word, and see how he uses both our bad decisions and the evil decisions of others to advance his purposes in our lives. So those are the first two things we are to think about. God's name, his character, and then our ways. Third category, verse 57, we are to think about God as our portion, our Inheritance. The Lord is my portion. First half of 57. For the Israelites, every, every tribe received a portion and inheritance in the promised land. And that would be what would come to mind in Israelites when they hear this word portion or inheritance. Some of us may be expecting to inherit something valuable from our parents or another relative in the future. Whether that's money or whether that's something, some precious heirloom that's been in our family for generations. The psalmist is saying, more than the land, more than anything that we may come to have, from a relative who dies, God himself is my inheritance. That's what I'm looking forward to. That's what I'm holding on to as a promise which is sure to be 
mine. I will always have him, and he is all that I need for joy, for fulfillment, for security, for honor. He is my portion. And if he is my portion, I don't need anything else. For in him I have all that I need. So we are to think in those terms. Think about his name, his character, our own ways, think of our own ways, think of God as our portion, and then fourth, last, we are to realize I am not alone. I am not alone. One temptation we face is the temptation Elijah faced after the great encounter with the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel. You remember that? He has this great victory. You know, the priests of Baal dance around, cut themselves, and try to get Baal to answer by fire and consume the offering. And they fail. Elijah mocks them and then calls down God calls upon God quietly, without all the rigmarole that the priests of Baal were going through, calls upon God to send fire from heaven so that these people may know that he is God, he alone is God, and Elijah is prophet. A great miracle takes place. The offering is consumed. Elijah slaughters the priests of Baal. Seems like a great victory. But then Jezebel sends word She's going to kill Elijah. And Elijah runs a huge distance and gets eventually to Horeb, Mount Sinai. And he says this, 1 Kings 19.10, I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah thinks he's the only one that those who hold on to God's word, who are faithful, that they're all gone except him, that God's promises are contingent on his not being killed, and he is under threat of death. Well, God answers Elijah in several ways, but one thing he says eight verses later is, I will leave 7,000 in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. Elijah, you're not alone. There's 6,999 more in addition to you who are still faithful to me. It may look like you're alone, but you're not, you're not, you're not. There's a remnant of my people, always a remnant of my people. It's not going to disappear as part of my promise. Or as Jesus says, he will grow his church in the gates of hell, will not prevail against it. And so our psalmist says in verse 63, I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. He is not alone. There is a group, there is an assembly of God's people. And God always has his people. So, I am a companion of all who fear you. Therefore, the psalmist has a role in encouraging them, enabling them 
to examine their ways and walk on God's paths. And they have a role in encouraging him, in keeping him on God's paths. Satan tries to isolate us, to make us think, nobody else thinks like you. What an idiot you are. But God always has his people. We are not alone. We are part of his church, which is advancing, which is growing, and will be God's agent to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. So those are the four things that this psalm, this section of the psalm encourages to think about. God's name, his character. Think about our own ways. Think of God as our portion. And then realize we are not alone. Think clearly that we are part of his great church, his people. So second heading, brief heading, what should we ask God to do? Well, verse 49, the first verse in the section tells us, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. Now, at one level, that may seem a bit of a strange prayer. God, remember your word, as if God would ever forget his word, right? Not much chance that God's going to forget his word or his promise. But God loves for us to ask him to do what he has already promised to do and what he has committed himself to do. It's as if in a loving marriage, a husband tells his wife, tell me you love me. She's going to do it anyway, right? But to say, tell me you love me, is to say, it's such a joy to hear you say it. Say it again. Say it again. God loves for us to tell him to do what he's already promised to do. So we see, similarly, verse 58, I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. How does God respond? In Jesus, you are my precious child. You have my favor. You have my favor. All my works are grace to you. Remember the request that the thief on the cross, the repentant thief on the cross, made to Jesus. Remember what he says to Jesus? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today, you will be with me in paradise. God loves for us to ask him to remember for when we ask him to remember, we are reminding ourselves of his character. It's one way we are thinking, remembering his name. And so ask God 
to remember his word, his promise. And then, secondly, last in this category, what should we ask God to do? Teach us. Teach us. Continue to teach us day after day after day. Teach us. This is repeated multiple times in these 24 verses. Teach me your statutes. End of 64. End of 68. 66. First half. Teach me good judgments and knowledge. Think of this as enable me to think more clearly, right? Give me good judgment and knowledge. I cannot think straight unless you help me. So help me to think straight. Again, this is like that first part. Remember your promise. He's commanded us to think on our ways, to think about him, to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And so we're asking him, enable us to do that. And so Augustine's famous phrase, O Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Give us the ability to follow your command. That's what we're saying here. Teach me good judgment and knowledge. So we ask God to remember his word, his promise, and then to teach us. Well, then third category, third heading, what's the impact of such thinking on us? Five impacts to pick out from these verses. Look at verse 59 again. When I think on your ways, what happens? I turn my feet to your testimonies. What does that imply? If we don't think about our ways, what are we going to do? The implication is, if we don't think about our ways, we're going to turn away from God's testimonies. We have to think about the path we're on, where we've been, where we're heading, or we're going to turn away from God's path. But if I think on my ways, I am obedient. I walk in his ways. And so the first impact, first of the five impacts, is that we are obedient when we think. Verse 60 elaborates on that. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments so that I obey immediately. I don't procrastinate. If I think about my ways, I immediately step out and do it. Remember, when God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son, whom he loves, on Mount Moriah, what does Abraham do? He doesn't wait a few days, talk to Sarah about it, go back to God and say, God, is that what you really want me to do? He gets up early in the morning. He brings the wood for the fire. And he goes. He obeys right away. And so, the first impact is obeying. In verse 56, this blessing has fallen to me that I have kept 
your precepts. Literally, that reads, this is mine that I have kept your precepts. And so you look at different English versions, what do you do with that? This is mine. I think the ESV interprets this rightly. This is a real blessing to me. This is what it means for me to be me, for me to follow you, to be keeping your precepts, to be obeying you. Keeping your precepts is life, a blessing. And so I will follow you gladly. And then verse 61. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. I think the word picture is something like this. The wicked try to rope you, you know, like a cowboy with a lasso. Turn around like my son-in-law can do. And, and put, the, put the, the rope over the calf's neck and then pull the calf and guide it wherever he wants. So think of the wicked like that, all with their lassos, trying to stick it around your shoulders and drag you, tempt you to get off of God's path. And so, New Living Translation, evil people try to drag me into sin. It's pretty interpretive, but I think that is the idea. But the psalmist is saying, even though that happens, even though I'm lassoed and I'm dragged in this direction, I do not forget your law. And by not forgetting your law, I resist that temptation. And so, I am able to obey. So the first impact of our thinking is obedience, resistance to temptation, quick, hastened, hastened obedience. The second impact of thinking is comfort. Verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. In the midst of my affliction, not knowing how God might use it in my life, I have comfort that God's promise is true. I can hold on to it. And I have life. He is my portion. He is my inheritance. And so the affliction does not leave me desolate. I have that comfort. 52. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O oh Lord. Seeing who he is, how he acts, what he promises, I take comfort. And this is true even when we are mocked or persecuted. So the verse between those two verses, 51, the insolent utterly deride me, or the arrogant utterly mock me or ridicule me or treat me with contempt but I do not turn away from your law. I'm comforted in a, in a specific affliction of when others accuse me of being a fool, when others mock me for believing in a dying and risen Lord. I am comforted when others treat me with contempt 
for holding on to the Bible as the Word of God. I don't turn away from your law. Similarly, verse 69, the insolent smear me with lies, but it has no effect on me. With my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Or 54, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. In the house of my sojourning, it could mean here where I am, where I am an alien, where I am a refugee, life is difficult, people don't understand me. Here, your statutes give me joy that I would not have otherwise. That's what it could mean in the house of my sojourning. Or it could mean, as some of the versions translate it, wherever life takes me, wherever I dwell, wherever I may sojourn, I will remember your statutes will be my songs, my delight, wherever I may go. So, the impact of our thinking is Obedience, second, comfort, third, indignation at the wicked. Verse 53, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Verse 70, their heart, speaking of the insolent who smear him with lies, their heart is unfeeling like Fat. That's not an image which is real easy for us to understand. N-E-T renders that dull and stupid. I do think that's the idea. Their heart is dull and stupid, but I delight in your law. Now, he's not saying that these people who are deriding him are unintelligent, right? They are fools under the biblical definition of what a fool is. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, or Yahweh is not God. So that the psalmist is saying that no matter how bright, how intelligent our critics might be, those who smear us with lies, ultimately, if they continue in that path, they are dull and stupid about what is most important about who God is, how we can be reconciled to him, where the world is headed. Now, these verses don't imply that we should not care about or have concern for these who are deriding us, who are smearing us with lies. Jesus tells us we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you, do good to them, so that we might be like our Father in heaven who sends his reign on both the just and the unjust. But we are to realize their end, realize the path that they are on and how it contrasts with the path that we should be walking on, that we are walking on by his grace. So that we can indeed be firm in warning them about the path they are go going on, loving them through proclaiming that truth, and not be lured by the temptation to fit in 
with these mockers. So the third impact of our thinking clearly is indignation at the wicked. The fourth, very briefly, is praise. Can we think clearly? We're going to praise God. Verse 62. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. At midnight, middle of the night, Again, this could be metaphorical midnight. It could be actual midnight. I rise to praise you. Even in the hardest times, the darkest times. And then fifth, lastly, verse 72, the end of this section, I think serves as a summary of these previous 24 verses. And this is to know the value of God's law. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. It's related, related idea to thinking of God as our inheritance, right? That he's worth more than anything physical we might inherit, whether that's land or goods or cash. But what the psalmist is saying here is a bit more than that, I think. After reflection, after thinking, he's realizing that God's revelation of who he is is worth more than billions of dollars. And so he repeats his request. Teach me your statutes. This is where value. This is where truth is, and the truth will set us free in God's word, in his revelation. Well, then in conclusion, as I promised, I want to think about the type of thinking the scripture commends in contrast with the type of thinking that the world commends. Scripture commands an actively dependent thinking, to use the phrase that we introduced last Sunday. I am dependent on him. Not to acknowledge that dependence is to pretend that I'm able to think straight apart from him and his word. I have to acknowledge that apart from his revelation, I cannot think straight. In particular, I cannot think straight about God unless he enables me to do so. And actively dependent thinking is acknowledging that he is who he says he is. He is good. He does good. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger. He will by no means clear the guilty. So the type of thinking scripture commends is actively dependent thinking. And then secondly, it is relational thinking. That was an emphasis in the sermon two weeks ago, right? I will seek you with my whole heart. We delight in his word, we love his word, 
We want to learn his statutes. We want God to teach us those statutes. Not so that we can rattle them off, but so that we might know him, have him, love him, be his child, his beloved. And so that's the type of thinking that scripture commands. This contrasts with the type of thinking that atheistic critics command. The type of thinking that imagines we can be blank slates, Latin term tabula rasa, able to objectively and dispassionately think about God and come to some sort of rational conclusion. That's not who we are. No one is like that. No one is like that. A couple of philosophers I'm going to quote in an upcoming sermon give you a, a test today, and not a test, a foretaste today. They say one of the most profound things about human beings is that they have belly buttons. Right? The belly button shows us that we're not autonomous. I was born by a mother. Right? I had parents who guided me. I was born into a community. I'm not autonomous. More on that later. But we, rather than being objective, dispassionate, blank slates, we're more like a child, a teen, say, who has spit in the face of his loving father and now pretends to be impassionate and be able to give an objective assessment of his father's parenting. Right? He can't do it. He's going to need, the family's going to need, some sort of counselor to come and help them sort through the issues before there's any chance that he's going to be able to think clearly about the type of parenting he has had. So we are to think the way that the Bible tells us to think, actively dependent, relational thinking, looking to his word, asking him to renew our minds. And thus, for those of us who are believers, we are to remember his name. Think about our own ways. Remember he himself is our portion. Remember, we're not alone. We're in a community of faith. But what if you're not a believer? What if you're not there yet? You don't know that the Bible is the Word of God. You've read parts of it. You find Jesus somewhat attractive. But you don't want to be fooled into following something which is not true. We don't want you to be fooled into following something which is not true. So how does such a person think? Can't yet think in this actively dependent way or in this relational way. If scripture is true and you can't think straight, what do you do? You gotta think somehow. This is my suggestion, that you pray something like this. Oh God, if you're there, if your word is true, if the Bible is your revelation, I want to follow it. I really do see truth. And yet, 
least this much in your scripture I know is true. I know that if this is true, I'm a rebel against it. So if you are the God of the Bible, if you are the creator, the Lord of the universe, if you are good and do good, if I am that rebel against you, falling with a fallen mind and I can't think straight, I do want your truth. I do want your insight. I do want to know you if all those things are true. So if this is your revelation, please open it up to me. Help my unbelief. Unseal my eyes. Unveil my heart. Reveal this Christ to me as we see. And then, if this is you, if this is the state you're in, I encourage you to think through four questions concerning the scriptures. Think through them respectfully and prayerfully. Are they consistent? Is the message of the Bible consistent? You're going to find apparent inconsistencies. But many people, including myself, have suggested ways to think about these apparent inconsistencies. And so investigate that. Is it consistent? Second, does it explain the world around me? Does it explain the way things are headed in the world? Does it explain the history of the world? Does it explain not only what's around me, does it explain myself, what I see inside me, the contradictions that I see, how I can vow to walk one way and do one thing and fail completely in that? And then, fourth question. Does God's word change people? What does it do to people? Recognize that all, not, that not all professed followers of Jesus are followers of Jesus. Jesus himself says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But of those that do seem genuinely changed, what has happened to them? Through the word. And so I pray that God, in these ways, would confirm his word to you, that you might then acknowledge Jesus as the promised one, the word. See him as Savior and Lord, and that you might gladly submit, actively depend on his grace, on his mercy, on his sacrifice. And you can join us and encourage us in thinking as Psalm 119 commands. Some of you may be familiar with the story of Polycarp, who lived at the end of the first century and well into the second century. He was taught by the apostle John, and he perhaps was the last man alive who had been discipled by one of the apostles themselves. When he was 86 years old, or maybe older than that, he was arrested for not worshiping the Roman gods. And as reported by an eyewitness of his martyrdom, 
The official in charge said, Reproach Christ, and I will set you free. But Polycarp had thought. He had thought clearly. He knew the truth. He knew God was good and does good. He knew God's name and all that that implies. He knew that Jesus was his portion. He had that inheritance and nothing could take that away from him. And so he responded. Eighty-six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And then the official said, I have wild animals here. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Listen now to his response. Call them. It is unthinkable for me. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good and to turn to what is evil. He had thought. And so disobedience to God rejecting Jesus became unthinkable. That's the impact of our thinking on our ways, our considering his name and doing that day after day, year after year, decade after decade. May we think, and so may it become unthinkable to us to turn from his paths. Let's pray again.